Hello, and welcome to MonarchCast. I'm Claire. I'm Allie. And today we're finally, for most of you, I'm sure, on our part four of Henry VIII. Well, I don't know. I like to think if they've made it this far, they're on board. (laughs) So (laughs) we promise this one won't be as long as the last two. Uh, But hopefully by now you understand there's just so much to talk about with this guy. This is a man Um, who led a very full life. There's a reason he's my favorite. It's not because of his winning personality. Uh, but before we get started, do we have any royal oops from last time? We do have a couple. So I actually have one that is both a royal oops for the last episode and the prior episode. Oh, so, great. Yeah, so we got in a discussion last time about whether the Wyatt who was executed for his affair with Anne Boleyn was Thomas or Henry. Mm. And... I, I thought it realized was Thomas. It is Thomas. Yay! And I realized, <laughs> but I realized why I had made this mistake. So Thomas's father is Henry Wyatt, but Thomas also had a son named Thomas. Mm. So when I was reading about him, I had conflated him with his father because like they both had a son named Thomas. So the the Wyatt who was a poet and who had a dalliance and um with Anne Boleyn and was eventually executed for it was Thomas Wyatt. Oh no, he wasn't executed. He he was let off or, because of his family uh, connections. Man, I am really gonna talk nope. myself into another. No, 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 no. Here. It's okay. okay, but we were talking about the same person. Yes. Okay. Yes, but Henry Wyatt was his father, but he was more involved with Henry Tudor, Henry the Seventh, because he was an ardent Tudor supporter and was possibly jailed and all of these things. So. But Probably Thomas, why Thomas Wyatt escaped the axe. Yes, but Thomas number one is the one that we were talking about. So gotcha. just clearing that up. And then also I had mentioned that none of his wives would have probably referred to themselves as Protestant because that, was, that term wasn't in common usage yet. And so I wanted to look up the etymology of this word a little bit because it does have different debuts in different countries. So it actually, Protestant is a term that derives from 1529 when the German princes and free cities declared their dissent or protested a decision in 1529 that had reversed the liberal terms that had allowed Lutherans to practice in 1526. So they were protesting the reversal of this and were known in Germany from that point on as um, Protestants. So the Lutherans in Germany took up this word and applied it to themselves, although notably Swiss and French still preferred the term reformed. However, in England, it wasn't widely used until about 1553. So if we're talking about an English wife of Henry, probably would not have, she would not have referred to herself as a Protestant. But Anne of Cleves may have. She might have, yes. But so in their refer cuz th- I think this came up and it's funny because it's so interesting when we get into these little questions. So we were talking about it in the terms of the Protestant princes in Germany who may have referred to themselves as in fact the Protestant princes. But when you're talking about Anne Boleyn, Catherine Parr who we're going to talk about today, they probably didn't refer to themselves as Protestants. No, that would not have been a term that they would have been maybe even familiar with. But if they were familiar with the fact that maybe Lutherans were using this term, they wouldn't have been comfortable with that. Because again, remember in England, they didn't consider themselves part of the same movement. So, or at least not always, like it was the idea that reforms needed to happen to the church, but like that Luther guy took it a little far. And it's so so interesting because now Protestant is just... Yeah, now it's widely used for essentially Christianity. Yeah, just means um, like not Catholic. Yeah, essentially. And, yeah, right? and and for a long time there were people who resisted using the term Protestant because they viewed that the Anglican Church was equally as Catholic as the Roman Church, with the only difference that you weren't under the Pope's jurisdiction. Which so, is, which, which is, is not- to my point that they viewed their reforms as very different from the so-called Protestants. And I think that's valid from what we've talked about. Interesting. Interesting. So I just wanted to clear that up because I knew I had read it and I couldn't, because I read it in one of these books that I had read. I think it was the David Starkey book. And he just had a casual mention of, she wouldn't have called herself a Protestant because that term wasn't coined yet, but then he never 
went on to mention when it was coined so or where. So I just wanted to clear that up. I think that's an excellent royal oops for this evening. It really is because we are going to talk a little bit about the Protestants. We are. And but they wouldn't have called to, themselves that. Of course. <laughs> reformists. Yep. I may use the term. Well, we can use it. I mean, it's, yeah. it is interchangeable. Just that contemporary accounts, they would not have used this For term. all those historians out there slapping us on the wrists. We know. <laughs> We're trying. We're we trying. Are. I, I want to apologize in retrospect for the debacle that was our pronunciations in the last episode, but we just... Hey, sometimes that's really difficult. Some of these names are tough. <laughs> Do you have any gossip? I mean, okay, I read a story in multiple publications that I found amusing. I don't know if it's like true gossip. Like, it's nothing scandalous. I thought it was funny. Okay, so that's gossip too. We talked about before, yeah, we talked about before that Princess Eugenie is getting married in October. And following in the footsteps of her uncle, she is apparently eco-friendly and declared that she's going to have a plastic free wedding which fine that is noble that is admirable even however Uh, we're talking about a wedding (laughs) and we're talking about a royal wedding and i have a hard time understanding how much plastic was going to ever be at this wedding (laughs) so it sounds really noble and like great but what wedding have you ever been to where you're eating off of plastic plates with plastic utensils? Like maybe cocktail stirs can sure. sometimes be plastic. Maybe that okay. straws. I could see straws. Maybe, but it just made me laugh because I was like, "What cheap ass royal wedding is this gonna be where you're using plastic?" I agree. I you know the only thing I can think of. Do you think is it's that like the trash bags that, and also they've invited the public? to sit on the lawn and I'm wondering if maybe yeah. that's where the people are eating off plastic plates and plastic forks maybe like you're not allowed to bring plastic into the grounds well, and I or think something they all get some kind of snack yeah I just it made me no giggle it's funny a little because bit. you're right so we I'm sure we will find out in what way you're right a wedding is not the place that you think although I was gonna say, I was just gonna say a wedding is not the place that you think you'd see plastic although maybe that's the point is that plastic is everywhere and you don't even it's in the microphone when you get married so maybe they're gonna have a special microphone okay but that's not like no one's gonna throw the microphone away at the end of the day that's a little bit different yeah I have I have no idea I'm just trying to I'm just trying to think of yeah. scenarios so but I I saw like three different like websites publish this story <laughs> I was like really we're we're widely promoting this okay well eugenie if you're out there we still support you and your big wedding so yeah plastic free she also formally announced that her sister is going to be her maid of honor but i think we all knew that so they actually had a really nice photo spread in vanity fair which i think is where this originated i think it is where this originated yes fair or vogue probably vanity fair they do like vanity fair but yeah interesting (laughs) It originated in one of those and was picked up by other gossip sites and Well, everybody was probably trying to spot the plastic, so. It's, (laughs) I have to admire her, but I also just like, I mean, the better thing is like, okay, make your office plastic free or your house, you know, I. I have no, I have no further comment. (laughs) Yeah. Well, let's go back in time where there where everything was naturally plastic free. <laughs> All of Henry's weddings were plastic free, everyone. So he got everyone beat. They were all plastic point, free. His entire life was plastic point free. In his, favor. his carbon footprint was minimal. <laughs> point in his favor. Maybe his methane footprint was a bit higher though. It probably was. From you know, like horses and cows and stuff. And he was by all accounts a rather large man at the end of his life. Yep. <laughs> He might have contributed that Okay, himself. we're going off the rails. So where we left off last time, if everyone recalls, we've just seen the end of Henry's fifth marriage. That would be the beheading of Catherine Howard for adultery and treason. So by Which, unlike her predecessor, she actually did. Yeah, yeah. Those, those poor cousins. So by this point, Henry is now burned. Did through. we mention that, that last time? Yes, we did that mention they were that first they were cousins. cousins. Okay, yeah. 
But that's five wives that he's burned through, essentially. Unfortunately for Henry, even though he's now had five wives, he's got three kids, the specter of the succession is still looming over him. So he needs another wife and he needs to act fast because he's not getting any younger. Um, If we remember when he married Catherine Howard, he was 50. And in Tudor times, that's he's he's an old man. It's sort of incumbent upon kings. And we talked about this in in one of our first episodes in this series. It's they're only as strong as the dynasty that they can create. And the idea is that you don't just have one heir. You have several backups. And unfortunately, and this is especially true in Henry's case when the dynasty had already barely been established. Exactly. And he's got one son who's a child, and he's got two daughters who I guess they're there in case of emergency, but at this point they're declared bastards. So he's he's got to try for at least another son or at least another legitimate child. Unfortunately, in looking for a wife, this position becomes harder and harder to fill as time goes on. So there were a lot of women out there that would give what we call it in modern days a hard pass. Yeah, hard, hard pass. pass. Um, because basically it was known that the king, quote, either putteth away or killeth his wives. He doesn't have a great reputation yeah. as a husband by this point. Great for him, though. He finally finds a candidate. And as usual, he returns to his favorite place to find them the local pool court he finds a nice English woman he wants to marry interestingly this is his sixth marriage he's older so he's not really consumed by love or adoration at this point and for once arguably he made a rather rational choice so enter Catherine Parr Henry's sixth and final wife Unlike most of his other wives, she had actually been married before. She's, in fact, the most married English queen, having had four husbands during her lifetime. One of whom came after Henry. Yes, but that's still pretty crazy. Four husbands. Yeah. But you have to think, though, maybe that's after the debacle of Catherine Howard. It makes sense, right? Like, well, you know where she's been because it's been legally documented well I was just gonna say for all of Henry's other wives she's already got them beat because that means she survived a husband (laughs) but yes I think he's looking at her and thinking she's respectable she's not young and flighty his last wife had been 15 and look where that ended up she's a noble woman she's well known at court she's intellectual she's attractive she she's a solid choice so who was Catherine Parr well Catherine was born in 1512 as part of an established family in northern England so her father was descended from Edward III and we talked about this everyone's descended from Edward III (laughs) including Miss Mackley so suppose they weren't nobles even though they could claim this royal heritage Um, but they were connected to several noble families they would essentially be what we would call landed gentry they had land they had property but they're not members of the peerage so her father's not a baron he's not a an earl a duke do you know what I mean I do that was more for everyone out there (laughs) (laughs) I thought you well you paused I thought you were asking me I guess I kind of was Um, And interestingly, actually, I read this and I thought this was really interesting. So her father and mother were very close with Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon. Um, In fact, Catherine Parr was probably named after Catherine, who was her godmother. Mm -hmm. That's kind of interesting, just given who she ended up marrying. Um, But her first marriage, so when she was a teenager, she married a man called Edward Berg. Help. Mm-hmm. Burr. B-U-R-G-H. If anyone out there knows how to yeah, pronounce let's just that, start please spelling help things. Um, there's actually some confusion. So I read multiple sources on this, and there's um, a little bit of disagreement on whether or not she married Edward Burr, the grandfather, or Edward Burr, the grandson. 
both who had the same name, same family, um, but it's not really clear who she married. So she either married a man in his 20s or she married a man in his 60s. Obviously, as a teenager, that's a big difference, but it wouldn't be uncommon for a teenager to be married to a much older man. So (coughs) Catherine Howard. Exactly. I don't really have the answer and it doesn't really matter because he died a few years later, leaving her as a young widow. Shortly after this, her mother died. So this is kind of interesting. Um, Typically, if you were a young widow and you didn't have any children, your family would still decide what to do with you next because you you had to be remarried as soon as possible. Um, But her mother died. And so she received a marriage proposal and she accepted it on her own, making her own decision, which kind of establishes a pattern of she's an independent woman as independent as you could be in this time but you can't really be an independent woman in the destiny's child sense so you have to get married so she marries john neville who is the third baron latimer in 1534 becoming a member of the peerage um interestingly you might recognize the name neville um we mentioned this briefly no we mentioned this briefly (laughs) that sorry you said you might recognize the name neville that's where else am i supposed to know oh well i'm not sure if we actually mentioned the nevilles when we talked about our brief history of the wars of the roses but um the neville family was very involved and neville and that's right no cecily neville was the mother of edward the fourth Richard III, and George, Duke of Clarence. So the Neville family was very involved on the Yorkist side of things. Okay. Interestingly, this John Neville, I read, went almost broke trying to reclaim the title of Earl of Warwick. And if you'll remember, Earl of Warwick was the young Mm. man executed in order to make room for Catherine of Aragon to take the throne as Henry's first wife and queen consort. So I'm only bringing that up because the Nevilles are heavily intertwined um, with all of this, but she becomes one of them and she becomes a member of the peerage. So Catherine Parr is now a noble woman for all intents and purposes. Uh, He's also twice her age. He's staunchly Catholic and opposed to Henry's annulment from Catherine of Aragon. So interestingly about this guy is last time we talked about the Northern Uprising or the Pilgrimage of Grace where the Catholics were very upset with Henry destroying the monasteries and the convents and they started a revolt. So he he became involved and it's not clear whether it was by force or by choice. And I actually read that Catherine and her stepchildren were held hostage by some of these rebels to force him to participate i'm not sure if that's true but if it is it probably contributed to her later reformist sympathies yeah there was a thing during this rebellion where a lot of the nobles were actually coerced into participating through like you know these kinds of tactics and her husband i read was on the road to like pledge his support of henry and was waylaid and told that his wife and children were being held hostage. Yeah, it's... it's So he had this, like, untenable it's, choice. It's really right? interesting, like, and I think even even Henry never really knew the truth, but for a while, his reputation was really destroyed by all of this. Cran, uh, sorry, Cromwell certainly believed him to be guilty, and if we remember our buddy Cromwell, he had no sympathy for these pilgrims. But eventually... They moved to court and Henry pardoned him for his role. And it seems like later in his life, they enjoyed a healthy relationship. But by the time they got back, they got to court, Latimer's health was pretty bad. And he eventually died, leaving Catherine a rich widow for the second time, um, who could finally control her destiny because not only was she free of her parents, but she actually had means to live upon. So she didn't need to find a husband to take care of her. Um, around the same time, Catherine had become really good friends with the Lady Mary. She, this goes back to her family's relationship with Catherine of Aragon. She kind of used that as an in, and they became very, very good friends. And she served in her household, and that's where she met 
and fell in love with a gentleman named Thomas Seymour. Now, you might recognize that last name because he is the brother of Jane Seymour, Henry VIII's third wife. They started to talk about marriage, but unfortunately, she caught Henry's eye as well. So she felt like she had to accept his marriage proposal as he was the king. Seymour was also shipped off to Brussels to get him out of the way because Henry wasn't... Hey, that sounds familiar. Guess who else got shipped off to Brussels to get him out of the way? Oh, was that... Peter yeah. Townsend. Yeah, hey, that's... I guess that's... I just realized that. the place to go if you're, if you're in love with a royal adjacent. I was like, wait, what? Which royal are we talking about right now? Wow, I didn't even catch that. No, Sorry. no, that's... I just had this moment of like, wow. That's, that's pretty funny. Um, but, you know, Henry was aware of the attraction between the two of them, and he'd already noticed Catherine, and he decided, I'm going to get rid of all my competition. So Henry mm-hmm. first noticed Catherine romantically about a year after Catherine Howard's execution. Um, Catherine was in her 30s at this point, which makes her his oldest wife when they got married. If you remember, all of his wives, with the exception of Catherine Howard, were considered older by Tudor standards, but they were in their early 20s. Catherine's already in her early 30s. So she's an old maid. Well, not an old maid. She's been married, but she's an old lady at this point. Um, And significantly hasn't had any children. Yes, which is kind of interesting that he chose to marry her. It's an odd choice. There's no proof that she's She's had two husbands and no children, Um, which kind of makes me think, honestly, when we go back to the idea of her first husband, whether it was this old guy or this young guy, that it had to be the old guy. Because if both of her husbands were twice her age, it makes a little more sense that it might not lead to children. Whereas if she married mm-hmm. a young guy in his 20s and she, spoiler alert, does eventually have a baby, I think it's more likely it was the older. Just my yeah. unhistorical, personal, non-medical opinion. But it's kind of interesting. You know, even if they were both young guys, I think, having been married twice. But at this point, also in an era where they tended to blame the woman for these things. Right. It's an odd choice. It's it's odd. In any case, he noticed her. He liked what he saw. Uh, Interestingly, at this point, Catherine was still married. Her husband hadn't yet died. But Henry, he's already showering her with affection. He's giving her gifts to express his esteem and... She's not like the other wives. She's not looking at this as a social climbing opportunity or an opportunity that she can take advantage of. She's a little perturbed. She's saying, you know what? I'm married. Why is this man sending me gifts? But she can't refuse them. I don't want to lose my head. Exactly. That might be part of it. But she can't refuse them. He's the king. And in any case, her husband dies and Henry has to be respectful and wait a respectable amount of time for her to mourn him. Um, Catherine did, however, remain at court, and that's kind of interesting because she could have gone off to the country to spend her mourning period, but she decides to stay, and that's probably because of Thomas Seymour. Um, but Henry, you know, we just talked about this. He's aware of their attraction. He ships him off. She's still there. He takes advantage. So by the time Catherine is aware that he's interested in her as a potential wife, there's nothing she can do. She essentially had to resign herself to her fate and accept his marriage proposal. They were married in July of 1543. Um, I wanted to point out that I was reading that around the time of the marriage, he also had three Protestant heretics burned to death right after and forced her to watch. So he's still the tyrant that we were talking about last week. I've been talking about him making this mature choice for a wife, but make no mistake, Henry is still a very cruel king, very non-tolerant tyrant. He's not brooking with any religious reformation at this point. He's he's the head of the church, but as you just said, it's it's Catholic in every other practice. No Protestants are allowed. I mean, you could argue that the only person allowed to truly, like, be a Protestant or say these things is like the king, right? Because no one's going to burn him to death. But, but he's not, he's not even saying what the Protestants are saying. His only... No, he's not. But but my point is like everyone trying to ride his wave and take it further is going to be punished. Yeah, he really did not tolerate what he viewed as heresy. But Catherine, she kind of 
ignores all of this and her, her whole goal is now she's the king's wife she's just gonna try to be a good queen she, and she's gonna try to be a good stepmother and she's gonna try to foster a good relationship between henry and his daughters because you have to remember she's his sixth wife but we've got catherine of aragon and anne boleyn the first two wives and they gave him the daughters and both of them have been declared bastards and it's been kind of a rocky road. Jane Seymour and Anne of Cleves tried a little bit, but Henry wasn't really that interested in what was going on in their lives because in at this point, they're not really part of the succession. But she really helped bring everyone together and foster a good relationship. She also, by all accounts, had a good relationship with Edward, which isn't really surprising given the fact that um, Anne of Cleves and Catherine Howard weren't really on the scene for very long. So she's probably the only mother figure he ever really knew well edward's not that old no he's he's a very small child and he's his mother died in childbirth and it's it's interesting when you look back and it's she becomes his father's wife and all of a sudden she becomes his mother you know he has Mm -hmm. to refer to her as his mother and i think she really tried to have a good relationship with him and i think that that's really admirable and also interesting because she didn't have children of her own at this point so she really embraced henry's children henry respected her he left her as regent when he went on campaign to france uh this was his final campaign to france i I have no other notes on this i don't think anything of note happened um this was just kind of his last hurrah of hey i'm just gonna go poke francis in the ribs one more time (laughs) during my life yeah it's kind of just like he's continuing to buy into this idea that traditionally england is supposed to go to war with france so why not do it one more time it's really interesting it's almost like this pursuit of glory that maybe you'll get lucky and you'll reclaim some territory and then you can just claim yourself to be this amazing king of england Mm -hmm. but it, it seems like a waste of money to me but anyway he left catherine in charge and by all accounts she was a really effective ruler in his absence this may have been helped by the fact that everybody he left to support her liked her and got along well with her and so there was no tension while he was gone but she was really good at managing accounts she was good at identifying issues that needed to be addressed and actually some people say that she really inspired the ruling style of her stepdaughter elizabeth which is interesting yeah she was this example of a strong woman asserting herself and succeeding in this role that traditionally, at least in England, women were not considered to be able to do. Yeah, and it's it's also... Much like her predecessor, well, Catherine I was just going to say, it's kind of an interesting comparison there because Catherine's role as regent, she kind of had to step in as like general almost um, and, and mm-hmm. was very bloodthirsty. We didn't actually talk about this in that episode, but... Um, I read that when James the Fourth died on the battlefield, Catherine wanted to send his head to Henry. Yeah. Everybody had to talk her out of that. So that tells you what Catherine was about. Um, Catherine Parr's tenure as regent was a little less bloody. Um, but, you know, she was, comp- she was a competent leader, and Elizabeth goes on to be Elizabeth the First. We all know what happens there. So it's kind of interesting that she had this role model so early in her life. What's interesting about Catherine is we talked about this idea of religion, but while she's married to Henry, her religious views are constantly under suspicion. So from the very beginning, she's suspected of being a secret Lutheran. And I'm not really sure why this came about, except for it's probably true, you know? She's married to these staunch Catholics beforehand. She's raised Catholic. The only thing I can think is that she probably was. And where there's smoke, there's fire, you know. Um, but she was always... Well, she was pretty vocal about... She, she, like Henry, was a bit of a religious scholar. And so I don't know that she was necessarily hiding any questions she was asking about, well, what do you think of this doctrine? Or what do you think of this? But And also at this point, maybe given her status and her history and her family she didn't really feel she needed to hide too much her her views if they I don't were know. alter I mean when they're burning but, heretics at the stake well that's one thing but maybe in her mind the heretics are 
their crime is being vocal and taking it too far, but like she's just asking questions in her religious essays or books. You it's know. just kind of interesting that this cloud was over her from the very beginning. So she definitely, and you, you just mentioned this, she published works later in life that make it pretty clear she certainly was a reformist and likely held those views for a long time. Right. And what I was also going to mention is maybe this is a case of, you know, Henry's wives tended to seesaw back and forth between religious conservative, reformist, religious conservative, reformist. And certainly there were always people who had a horse in the race, right? So maybe when Henry marries Catherine Parr, there's someone else that the conservatives would prefer instead. And, you know, maybe they're slandering her name because she's not their chosen wife for him. And that may be, that may be, because I don't think she would have been anybody's first choice. Um, no. In any case, she was really careful not to let too much slip. So by 1545, Henry became very ill. He's in agonizing pain due to his leg, and he's incredibly short-tempered. Um, he starts to become incensed at reports of heresy in the kingdom. Um, he arrests a ton of Protestants, including a woman named Anne Askew, who Catherine's enemies at court thought there might be a connection between the two. Um, she was certainly sympathetic to the woman's plight, probably, honestly, because she's a woman being racked and forced to confess to all kinds of horrible things. But um, her enemies tried to use it to bring down Catherine, um, but she was eventually burned in 1546, and Catherine was careful not to give anything away. In fact, in 1546, Henry's informed that Anne Askew had implicated Catherine in a confession, but nothing came from this because, again, she's been racked for something like 40 hours, which we talked about mm -hmm. racking for poor Mark Smeaton. It's not a good time. Um, in fact, when they took her out to be burned, she she couldn't walk her spine was broken they, it, it's horrible it's horrible what people used to do I mean the things we do to each other in this day and age are horrible but we have a long history of devising truly disgusting ways of hurting other humans and huh, that's my <laughs> bleeding heart <laughs> moment of the night but ugh, this is just terrible but like I said there was really no connection to Catherine and there are a lot of people trying to implicate her in a Protestant plot, but this has more to do with the rising tensions, as we just talked about, between Protestants and Catholics than anything. So when Henry divorces the Pope, he opened a can of worms and it's just getting wider and wider and wider. So the longer this breach from the Catholic Church in Rome goes on, the bigger the window gets for the reformists to come in and you have instances like this where there's protestants out in the open you have catholics and as you mentioned they're just constantly vying for power catherine kind of got a little bit stuck in the middle at this point because she's the queen consort and so it's a big seat of power and of course everybody wants their horse in the race unfortunately for catherine she's very intellectually curious as you mentioned she likes to debate she likes to ask questions so she would often debate henry in theological matters which he initially tolerated he was kind of like oh well she's smart let's just let her talk this is fun you know he's considers himself a theological expert so he likes to lecture and teacher but he finally had enough and there was an exchange that was overheard by a bishop gardener who was staunchly anti-protestant and really anti-catherine and he hears henry say you know what i've had enough and he just cuts her off during one of these exchanges and so the bishop decides this is a great opportunity to go after her so he persuades henry that catherine should be investigated for her heretical views he says she's got all kinds of heretical texts in her rooms and she's promoting these protestant ideas and again this is me using the term protestant loosely um but by this point henry's used to suspecting his wives of bad behavior so he gives him the go-ahead he says you know what go out there see what you can find um eventually they draw up a warrant for her arrest and henry actually signs it um and they hand it off to a an anonymous member of the Privy Council. So this is kind of interesting because it ends up being discovered by a servant who's loyal to Catherine. So 
Catherine becomes immediately aware of it and she has to figure out what to do. So she's immediately hysterically upset, um, which isn't surprising given the fact that the previous wives that Henry arrested ended up being beheaded. Right? Can you imagine? Right. And compared to them, she's been behaving exactly but it doesn't matter what is she truly done oh my god henry wants to get rid of me and this is how he's gonna do it and the precedent is there right so of course she's hysterical i mean i'm surprised she didn't stroke out from fear um but apparently she was crying quite loudly and making quite a scene eventually they sent doctors to her and she just couldn't calm down so henry went to see what was the matter and she throws herself at his mercy and she tells him she's worried he's displeased with her and he's just utterly forsaken her and henry the ever the romantic is just completely touched and he comforts her and says of course i haven't darling don't worry and then interestingly the next time henry brings up religion Catherine smartly defers to him as the head of the church and insists that any disagreement they once had over these matters had been only to distract him from his infirmities and the pain in his leg she's quite clever so she's She's worked her way out of a trap. Henry's satisfied, and it's so funny. Uh, I love this story. The next day, when the Lord Chancellor Rothlesley... (laughs) Maybe Rosley? Okay. Well, it's an English person, so I'm assuming they omitted a few of these syllables, so it's probably rosley or something how about just lord chancellor so when the lord lord chancellor w when he shows up the next day to arrest her henry dismisses him and says what are you doing and he just sends him on his way and that's that so Catherine is safe for the time being a lot of people say she probably would eventually have been arrested and tried as a heretic shortly after this incident henry's health really begins to fail he has to be carried everywhere, and it's clear he's not going to improve. So he knows this. He starts to realize that his time is coming. So he makes provisions in his will for Catherine. He actually gave her a really generous allowance and actually ordered that after his death, she should be given the respect of a Queen of England, not just the Queen Dowager, um, as if he were still alive. He made provisions for a regency council for his son, Edward. Um, What's interesting about this is given everything that we just talked about, by this point, it's pretty clear that Edward's a Protestant. He's being raised and taught by members of the clergy and scholars who really have these Protestant leanings. Um, But Henry doesn't quibble about this. He just, and I don't know if it's the fact that it's his male heir that outweighed all of this or if he just didn't know it's really interesting if I had to guess it's that because Edward doesn't live with Henry he's not being educated by Henry there's probably an element of distance where Henry isn't totally aware of the extent of this but also if he hears anything of this we've seen Henry in the past He's not going to react as, oh my gosh, my son is a Protestant. He's going to react as, how dare you like malign the name of my son, you know? So it's possible that either he heard and didn't believe or didn't, as you say, didn't care because it doesn't matter what his son believes. It's his son. He's going to be the king of England and continue the Tudor name. So maybe it doesn't matter. Right. I just, it's, it's kind of interesting just given everything that we just talked about. But Given what his reaction to Catherine, yeah, it's a little bit odd. He also declares that Edward's going to be his heir, followed by any children of the marriage between him and Catherine. So as we mentioned, she hasn't conceived any children, but it's possible after he dies there may be a baby. And then after that comes Lady Mary, followed by the Lady Elizabeth. And then the heirs of Mary Tudor, who is his younger sister, and she's the late Duchess of Suffolk. He notably passes over the heirs of Margaret Tudor, his elder sister, due to the fact that they're all Scots. And he has had enough with the Scots and their their meddling uh, during his reign. And he also, I think this has a lot to do with the fact that he doesn't want Mary of Scotland, as we mentioned in the end of the last episode. She's the 
baby queen of Scotland. He doesn't want her on the English throne unless she's married to Edward. So he makes it really clear you're not in the line of succession, which is, again, a little ironic given where all of that ends up. Um, he also indicates that he wants to be buried beside Jane Seymour, which is interesting. Out of all of his wives, he wants to be married next to number three, the one who gave him a son. Also, like we talked about last time, the one he thought was his first truly lawful wife. And I think by the end of his life, the one that he had convinced himself that he loved the most. He certainly couldn't find any ways that she had betrayed him. She didn't have enough time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but... I think it's kind of sweet in context. Um, (laughs) Out of context, it's sweet. In context, it's troubling. (laughs) Actually, you're right. That's that's better. So he dies on January 28th, 1547 at the age of 55. By all accounts, he and Catherine had an emotional farewell. Um, They had a somewhat happy and successful marriage. You know, even though she didn't want to marry him, he actually compared to... All of his wives treated her pretty well. The only way they weren't successful was she never had a yeah. child. But Henry was probably impotent. Oh, by probably. This point. I think it was a lot of companionship, and he probably just genuinely liked her. But also the fact that he never had children with any of his last three wives, and as much as he protested that he couldn't consummate consummate his marriage to Anne of Cleves because he found her repulsive, it's entirely likely he was covering up for some inability to consummate his marriage. And maybe you think, okay, well, he probably could have overcome that for Catherine Howard, but she never, as, and she was young, so she was probably extremely able to have a child, and he never was able to give her one either. Yeah, that's a good point. But in any case, they parted on good terms. I also thought this was funny. On his deathbed, he sent a message to Francis one of France who was apparently dying of syphilis reminding him that he's also mortal like kind of like hey buddy I may be going first but you're about to follow me (laughs) so even to the grave this rivalry is still going strong so that's kind of a sad way to go for this monarch who looms larger than life and Catherine is the wife to survive him so we talked about this with the beginning, you know, the mnemonic device is um, divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. So Catherine has the distinction of surviving Henry VIII, which is kind of like getting a gold medal in the Olympics. Well, we should point out that Anne of Cleves technically survived him. They just weren't technically. married at the time. And I'll, I'll mention her in a second because she actually did. I still think she came out better than everybody else because so Henry's dead. And Catherine, again, she's a free woman, and he left her very well off. And unfortunately, she's not quite as independent as she had been before she married Henry because she's the king's widow. So after he dies, his old lo- her old love, and also I should point out the new king's uncle, so Edward's uncle, Thomas Seymour comes back into the picture. And he's very soon created the first Baron Seymour of Sudley, and he returns to court. Um, They quickly pick up where they left off, and they decide they want to get married. And I think this is kind of an instance of Catherine saying, oh my gosh, I missed my chance last time before some other old geezer who I can't refuse decides he wants to marry me. I'm going to marry the guy that I want to marry. So since only six months had passed at this point, since the death of Henry, the marriage is not going to be approved. Um, And Catherine has to get approval, unfortunately. So they marry in secret. And this is a big scandal. The king and his privy council are not informed for several months. And when it finally comes to light, it's actually a big deal. Mary is so horrified and scandalized that she and Catherine's relationship never really recovered. Because you have to remember, it's not just that she's the dowager queen or the widow of the king. It's it's this idea of we're within such a short time of mourning. It's seen as disrespectful. Um, right. Everybody kind of got over it, but they sort of, sort of exiled themselves to one of her houses that she received and kind of went off to the country and sort of let the scandal simmer down Um, but in the meantime she invites the lady elizabeth and the lady jane gray 
put a pin in that name to um, mm-hmm. live with her so that she can educate them. So she becomes known as this, she's already known as an intellectual woman, quite the scholar, but she also becomes known as a woman who can really educate your daughters and education of women at this point is actually highly prized, at least among these upper echelons of nobility. So Catherine's the woman to do it. And this is actually seen as really good for these young ladies. Um, She also soon becomes pregnant, which is kind of interesting. She's 35. It's her first pregnancy in four marriages. So I guess you could say that I don't even know if they were expecting this to happen. Um, She's quite old for this time period for a first time mother, but everyone's looking forward to the birth. It's, you know, it's it's kind of bittersweet because you could look at this as her happy ending. She finally got to marry the man she loved and she finally got to have a baby. Um, Unfortunately, during the pregnancy, there's some kind of scandal with Elizabeth and she's sent away. Um, Thomas Seymour, her husband, allegedly had his eye on her, if not worse. So no one's really sure what happened. He certainly was acting inappropriately with Elizabeth, who at this point was a very young teenager. It's not really clear from the historical record if he was if they were flirting, if there was some kind of consensual relationship going on, if he was molesting her, nobody really knows. Um, In any case, he later attempted to marry her and was arrested for it and beheaded for treason. So it's not... We'll talk about him another day. Yeah, when we talk about Elizabeth, we'll probably talk about this a little more. I only bring this up because it kind of sours Catherine Parr's happy ending. Shortly after this, she gives birth to a girl that she names Mary after the Lady Mary. Um, But unfortunately, she dies of the same illness as Jane Seymour, that childbed fever. And um, it's also not really known what happened to the baby after her infancy. There's no real record of her beyond the age of two. So it's likely she also died. died. Yeah. So it's kind of a sad ending. And you mentioned Anne of Cleves. I just want to bring her up. She's the last of Henry's wives to die. Also probably the most fortunate out of all of them. She died something like the third most richest woman in England. Not bad for a woman from the Dutch country. <laughs> yeah, she, not bad for a Flanders mare, right? Um, yeah, right? <laughs> she did okay. But those are that's the story of all of Henry's wives. That's where it ends. And next I want to talk about the legacy of Henry VIII. You know, I think if we think about all the things that we talked about in the last few episodes, this idea of the succession just overshadows everything. But in the end, Henry left three living children, including his son Edward. All three of these children eventually sat on the throne of England. And we aren't going to go too far into the details of this because I think certainly for Mary and Elizabeth, they deserve their own episodes. But it's kind of interesting that this idea of my succession isn't secure. I need to marry these women. I need to get more sons. When you look at what ended up happening, it's... It's it's so interesting. So first, I want to talk about the religious issues. So we talked about this can of worms that Henry opened, um, the power of the Catholics and the Protestants waxing and waning with whoever's at the throne, and that continues with his children. So Edward VI, Henry's son, takes the throne at the age of nine. If you know anything about English history, that doesn't really bode well for him. Um, he actually reigns from 1547 to 1553. So he died of what was probably tuberculosis as a teenager. I don't know if he was ever a particularly healthy kid, but it's hard to know because these illnesses, you know, if you made it to your 20th birthday, you were a success story back in the day. But We talked about this a little bit. He practiced the Protestant faith openly. So this left the reformists free to fly that flag, so to speak. There were actually some people who did not want to see him succeeded by his Catholic sister Mary. So they decided to supplant her. So he's he rules for a very short time, only six years. And um, it's a big flip, right? Because Henry dies a essentially a Catholic and he's burning Protestants at the stake and when his son takes the throne all of a sudden that stops you can be a Protestant it's almost the Catholics who are living in fear so when he dies so young Mary's next in line according to Henry's will and that's a big problem because she's 
Catholic. She's she's ready to do her own like English Inquisition. Exactly. Like, because <laughs> she's like, oh, you know what? My grandparents had the right idea. What we know of Mary is that she's raised by Catherine of Aragon. She's crazy Catholic. In fact, there were matches proposed to her throughout her life that she opposed because they weren't they were either with France or they're with Protestants and it's just it's just not her thing um so after Edward dies there's something called the nine days queen and I mentioned this woman a little bit earlier but this is the Lady Jane Grey so she's the granddaughter of Mary Tudor and Charles Brandon the Duke of Suffolk Mary Tudor is Henry's sister the younger sister who he if you remember put his heirs in the line of succession after Mary and Elizabeth but she's a Protestant so they want another Protestant so there's this whole scheme they get her on the throne they crown her before Mary can get to did she try to marry Edward is that no she, she married queen? she actually married a Dudley which so is, how but how are they what are they claiming is her right to the throne is it her relation to mary tudor her lineage and um maybe we'll do an episode on this because i don't have all the details i know she was just the granddaughter of mary tudor and i think this comes down to the fact that mary and elizabeth are technically still declared bastards i thought she i I thought i had read that they tried to marry her to edward but maybe i'm getting this you might be consider you might be thinking of mary queen of scots no Oh, maybe, well, I don't know, because they, they married her to a Dudley, like, pretty quickly. Yeah. And Edward wasn't married, so he would have been available. I, I'm not actually sure. All I know is she was queen for nine days. <laughs> and then Mary... Not a successful reign. And then Mary shows up in London, and everybody bows to her as the rightful queen, and Lady Jane Grey loses her head. So that's... So many heads, man. Yeah, that's the end of that story. Um... But Mary rules for five years, and from 1553 to 1558, she immediately sets about restoring the Catholic faith to prominence, and she becomes known as Bloody Mary due to her persecution of Protestants. Now, we've talked about the fact that Mary is actually the first queen in her own right of England, so she's going to get her own episode one day. So I'm not going to go into the details here, but it's more about the fact that we're just ping-ponging between the Protestants and the Catholics at this point. And then you have Elizabeth I. She reigns from 1558 to 1603. She reigns over a golden age of England and is known to history as one of England's greatest monarchs and I just want to point out the irony of this because not only is she a girl but after Henry set aside Catherine of Aragon and married Anne Boleyn and then he was all pissy that Anne Boleyn had a daughter that daughter goes on to be one of England's greatest queens yeah she's always treated as the lowest in the pecking order between her siblings like Regardless of the acts of succession as they changed over the years, Elizabeth is always proclaimed first the or third. The only time she's ever first is when her mother, that like very short period when her mother's still in Henry's good graces, but that's like a two-year period. So Elizabeth, almost her entire life, is the lowest on the totem pole. Yeah. And she ends up ruling for a significant amount of time and successfully. And everybody knows who Elizabeth I is. Yeah. And you could argue that, given the success of her reign, there was no need for anything after Anne Boleyn. Seriously, all those those poor women. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. You know, I think, and I think that's why we're talking about this as the legacy, as this idea of the succession, because of all the things that we talked about, you know, the Reformation, this accidental Reformation, the shutting down the monasteries, closing the convents, going to war with France. Nobody remembers any of that. All they remember is this quest for a son and having six wives. Not not wrong, not wrong. I mean, that's certainly by the end of his reign, you know, when you look at the five-year period where he went through three wives, it's it's pretty crazy, but it's just kind of interesting because when you look at his children, 
you know, Edward doesn't really stick out in history because he was young and he didn't really rule that long. But Mary's remembered because she was so brutal in her persecution. And then you have Elizabeth. I mean, you think Shakespeare, defeat of the Spanish Armada. We'll do an episode well, or two episodes on her probably because it was quite a reign, but no one well, could it's have interesting because Elizabeth in some way tends to overshadow her father, which if you think about what he wanted to establish a dynasty is a success story, but not the one that he imagined. And he has been, you know, written in history as this tyrant who murdered his wives and you know his his claim to fame is that he married six times and killed two of them and divorced two of them and that's not exactly a flattering portrait and the nuances tend to get lost and and you know I don't I don't want to give him sympathy because he really doesn't truly deserve it but you can see where he's coming from the pressure to procreate and in this time to have that progeny be male is enormous, but he succeeds in a way that had he himself been a little bit more open-minded, he could have avoided a lot of bloodshed and drama and political issues and problems just had he accepted that. Well, I mean, I guess, you know, had he accepted that, it would have been good. But also, I mean, had he accepted that a daughter was fine, Elizabeth would have never been born. So and England might have a very different history. So I don't know. But and it's also interesting, even if he had just stopped at Elizabeth, you know, his three children all take the throne, but his dynasty ends with his children. He didn't well, make that's a the dynasty. other thing, too. And and Elizabeth from what I've read, and we will talk about this more in detail, but she may have married and she may have had children and she may have accepted a prince consort or even a king had she not been so traumatized by not only the death of her mother, but you have to also remember when Catherine Howard died, Elizabeth was not very old. And Mm -hmm. in her mind, marriage was death. So... Why would you want to submit yourself to the authority of a husband who, if you call him king, he has the authority to put your head on the block? Well, that absolutely. And also this idea that you were never deemed worthy of ruling anyway. So a husband only endangers your position because if you introduce a man into the scenario, then you are obviously subordinate to him based on what you've been told your entire life. And I think it's no accident that she never married, but... I think you're right. I think the great irony of Henry's life is he did all of this in pursuit of establishing a dynasty and his daughter is the last Tudor queen. And also immediately after her death, the crown reverts to the hated Stuarts. So those dreaded Scots. Yeah, it's it's not a successful story. It really isn't. And it's it's also interesting, though, because. You can see this point, and I think this is why everybody talks about Henry VIII, is this reign, it was pretty long, first of all, which at the time, that's pretty successful when people are dropping dead of the plague every other week. But not only that, you can see the impact he has on the history of England and and the impact he has on the way the crown works. Because we've talked about this a lot. In some ways... He's he's, you know, he's got a privy council and he's got advisors, but he's he exercises such absolute authority that he I mean, that's why people use the word tyrant. And then after that, Mm -hmm. you don't really see that again. But I also think we don't see that again, but I also think he's in some ways the beginning of the decline of the monarchy, right? Yeah. Like it's not too long after him where England decides maybe we don't need this. Because and you have a guy who sits there and says, you know what, I'm so tyrannical that I'm going to declare myself the head of the church. And he's followed by successors who throw England into upheaval over this war of religion. And Elizabeth manages to calm things down for a few years because her reign is... Not only does she live long enough to establish some sort of religious consensus, but also she brings England into a golden age of wealth and culture, and all of this serves to promote the monarchy 
by default, but as soon as she's dead and her successors can't continue this, like people are reverting back to, oh, remember when, you know, your father and your brother and your sister were on the throne and we weren't so happy having this absolute ruler over us. And I don't think it's an accident that any sort of English overthrow of the monarchy didn't happen during her reign, but happened pretty quickly after. Yeah, I mean, you're only a few generations down the line when you have the execution of Charles right. the first. And with last name Stuart. Exactly. <laughs> and it's it's also interesting too. I mean, we talked about this. You can you wouldn't have Queen Elizabeth on the throne now if it weren't for Henry the actions of Henry the Eighth, because you've got this mm-hmm. tension between the Catholics and the Protestants, and that continues until you finally get to the point where you have them going 50 places down the line to find a Protestant because, God forbid, a Catholic sit the throne of England. Because in some ways, if you think about it, and now we're far enough removed that maybe it's just tradition that there's this Protestant ruler in, on the throne, but, and you know, it's codified in law and all this, but if you allow a Catholic back on the throne at this point, you've even, you know... 400 years later are admitting it was all for nothing. So but I don't think that you could. And we talked about this can't. a little bit because yeah. it's this idea of the Pope is the ultimate head of the Catholic Church. And mm-hmm. England has now established this idea that you can't have your monarch subservient to the Pope. It's just not going to work. Yeah. Even though the monarch is a figurehead. I mean, they're not exercising any power. Well, now, I mean, in this day and age, you have to wonder what does it truly matter, but, um, yeah. I think as long as you see them still claiming the title head of the church, you won't see a Catholic. And this is Henry's enduring legacy. I mean, he is a tyrant. He is not a good man for a very religious man. He For a romantic, for a hopeless romantic who preached, you know, devoutness he's not a good man and but yet his legacy more than almost any other ruler possibly in English history aside from like William the Conqueror he changes English history forever he really does I mean that's and he doesn't even do it on purpose which is probably the most I don't want to say ironic but maybe even hysterical thing about it it's like all of this is accidental yep he wanted a succession. Yeah. He just did not get the legacy that he envisioned. So it's really interesting. And I just think for all of you out there, if you've followed along to the end, you know, we hope that you're sitting here and you may have your own ideas of what you think this legacy is. But it, we wanted to cover him. And this is why we wanted to cover him in such detail, because we felt like you can't talk about Henry VIII without going into detail on the ways in which he really changed the game with breaking with the Catholic Church and the six wives. You've got to talk about them. They're integral to the story. So hopefully all of you are out there listening and thinking, maybe now you really have an understanding. Hopefully we've done our job. And like we always say, we're not authorities on history. We're not historians by trade, but we do try to distill it down and get to the meat of everything and really try to understand what's going on because we think that that's really interesting. So hopefully all of you out there really enjoyed this series on Henry VIII. We're not quite done. So Allie and I were talking about this and we think that it would be really interesting if for the next couple of episodes, um, maybe we'll do two or three, but we're going to talk about some of these ancillary monarchs who've kind of been orbiting the story. So we're thinking we're going to talk about Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain. So we're going to leave England for an episode and we're going to cross the sea and we're going to look at Catherine of Aragon's parents and we're going to talk about why they were such a good alliance for Henry. We're going to talk about Charles V and the Holy Roman Empire because I think we want to expand on that a little more. Right, Allie? You've got a lot to yeah. say on that. <laughs> Can't wait for the royal oops about that. <laughs> and we might also do Francis I since he was Henry's rival and he comes in, in and out of the story quite a bit. So we might talk a little bit about the France, the French monarchy. And that'll be kind of interesting because, you know, our podcast is Monarchast. It's not the British monarchy. We're interested in monarchy in general. So mm-hmm. this is a natural area to kind of expand into other countries. Um, and I think the last time we really expanded into 
other European monarchs, it was a bit of a cheat because they were all related to the British. <laughs> so, yes. and, and in this, they, they sort of still are related. Um, I think Isabella has her own descendancy from the English crown, but we're going to get a little bit more into the distinct European monarchies. I'm very excited. Yeah. So we've got a few more episodes coming at you, so stay tuned. But this wraps up our series on Henry VIII, and we really hope you enjoyed it. And as always, please rate us on iTunes. We really appreciate it. Yes, please. We really appreciate all the reviews and ratings we've gotten so far. And if there's anything we said that you felt was totally bonkers, please let us know. And if there's anything you guys want us to cover, let us know. We're so open to suggestions. Yeah, and we I really want to make it clear because I think – We've only had a handful of episodes under our belt so far. I think we're about at like 10 or 11 now. And um, I really want to reiterate, the point is never, like we've we've been very British-centric so far and European-centric, but I do eventually want to branch out into other monarchy systems. I mean, monarchies have existed all over the world for millennia. So if you've got a favorite, if you you're a huge fan of say the Japanese royal family or you know the Chinese emperors or I mean here in the US we've got our own history of monarchy in Hawaii so any of those we'd be open to talking about down the line so if anybody's got a burning desire to hear about any other non-eurocentric monarchy please let us know and we'll start investigating absolutely and with that we will see you next time Monarchast is produced by me, Allie, and me, Claire, and our logo is by Ryan Cooney. If you like our episodes and want to give us a shout out, please rate or review us on iTunes or Google Play or whatever your preferred method of podcast listening is. We really appreciate it.